Transmitting over the airwaves from sunny East Hollywood. East Hollywood. Comes the show where we explore our guests' life and culture and how food shaped that experience. From their first slice of pizza to the restaurant they really wish was still open, this is Food POV with your host, Jason Parker. Hello, hello, hello. Jason Parker here with Food POV and my two guests from Unity Unity Coffee Sourcing, Tyler and Adam. Say hi, Tyler and Adam. Hello. This is Adam. Tyler's maybe on classic mute. <laughs> uh, hello. Hey Tyler, let's just check your hello. Sweet. Okay, great. Maybe do you mind? Can we take? Can we take it again? Yeah, sure. Everyone hear me. <laughs> Sorry. This is a. Is this live? Are we on stage or is this well, pre-recorded? We, I mean, we are technically, but all I have to say is cut, and then we uh, we we start over, so it's all good. Uh, Tyler, are you on? Maybe he needs my Wi-Fi. Oh, can you hear us, Tyler? I have your wife. Now I can. Before hey. it was all robotic and nothing was working. There he is. If it ain't one I, thing, it's another. I think oh. it's okay. Yeah. Are we on delay? Or I can't tell if this is delayed or not. Um, Adam, are you good there? I'm great. Okay, cool. Well, we'll take a beat and then I'll do an introduction. Sure. And it's just um, Unity Sourcing and Roasting. Sorry. All good. Before we start, just want to confirm I sound okay. I'm not robotic sounding. Uh, I'm not on some kind of crazy delay. It's been a long road to get here on this Zoom call. Oh, you're good. You're good. It seems good at least. Okay. Okay, let's okay. do it. Take a beat of silence and then I'll do the intro. Hello, hello, hello. Jason Parker here with Food POV. And my guests today are Tyler and Adam from Unis- Unity sourcing and roasting say hi guys hello hello this is adam and this is tyler hello good to be here thank you for being here guys i really appreciate it um i guess right before we start uh tell me about unity sure so yeah, we, we, our motto is we source uh, vibrant coffees from producers we love. That's kind of a, a two-part thing. One is the vibrant coffees. So we're, we love, you know, juicy, exciting, uh, high, you know, awesome scoring coffee. Um, and the second part is from producers we love. Uh, we really value our commitments at origin and buy from the same producers year after year and work on strengthening those relationships as well as with our wholesale partners um and that's that's the gist of it that sounds awesome so uh here on the west coast uh people can find you at commissary correct and how many locations do they have now in in la county yeah i think they have six and and that's a really interesting one because it's a it's like a true partnership where um they're you know, it's their own roasting program, but we're the ones facilitating it. Um, and in my mind, it is the, the absolute future of, of a wholesale roaster is to figure out how you can best partner with your, um, with your customer and ultimately get them to thrive. And at the same time, support your producers. Um, it's funny you were talking about uh, juicy and high scoring. How often have you tried a coffee that people didn't score very well that you just thought was 
was out of this world that just must have like slipped through the crack somehow, or they must have got a bad bean in the uh, in the the cupping on the cupping spoon. Does that happen very often? <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna. I'm going to answer this one. Um, uh, Tyler, you can totally take the next one, but I'm going to answer this one. So uh, the answer here is like, we've been obsessed with like weird, like naturals, like super fruited coffees, like since the first day I tried them. Um, and I've been in coffee now for about 11 years and been able to make like purchasing decisions for, I don't know, six or seven, something like that of years. So, you know, it would be like 2014 and we'd be, or even 2013, um, and we'd be tasting coffees. And, and there were a lot of people who were not down with like a natural from Colombia. They were like, this is unacceptable. And even back then, you, you had a very, very hard time even exporting naturals from Colombia. You had to like sign a specific document saying like, yeah, the customer really wants to buy this. Um, uh, fast forward to 2021, and it seems like anybody who's anybody has a natural from Colombia. But I, you know, just to call it, call it, um, in, in 2014, I was loving these profiles. I was obsessed and uh, I, was, I was out of calibration with a, a good amount of my uh, peers. Um, and I actually, I think coffee about 2015, to me, coffee changed. All of a sudden, mm. a lot of people growing coffee and a lot of people who think they know how to sell coffee they just got the idea that anything that was, you know, coming out of the ground must be good and high quality. And I just feel like it's, you know, there's, there was a lot of really great coffee that was kind of going under the radar and it just, I feel like it isn't the case so much anymore. Not to say that people aren't coming out with really good coffee, but it's, it's like nowadays everyone knows what everything's worth and you're not going to get that little, that unicorn anymore of, of a great cup of coffee unless you pay for it. And um, I actually, I actually think Adam that Tyler has something happen. So it's just you and me right at the moment. Oh, dude, I'm sorry. Um, well, uh, Tyler and I are pretty calibrated, so I'm sure uh, if he gets to join back in, he'll he'll be able to ex experience this. But, but in in response to what you're saying, um, I think it's great that the industry has has uh, has gone the way it's gone. Um, my, one of my main MOs in being a professional, if I could leave a, a mark, if I could have a legacy is to drive prices higher to producers. Um, so the fact that I'm seeing, for example, all of these naturals from Colombia at high price points actually makes me happy because the commodity grade pricing is not sustainable, um, for the growers. Um, it, it, it's a sustainable for everybody else, but the growers are the people who, um, you, like you said, that's coffee in the ground. That's the only place that exists. So um, I'm all about driving those prices up, getting those cup profiles up. There's always a local market or a mega conglomerate who will buy uh, the, the stuff that's not as good, but um, happy to see the industry thriving. I, I really enjoyed working for Verve because of their connection to the farmer and really trying to push that um, farmer's rights, farmer, you know, having, having a livable wage and being able to eat and stuff since they're providing us with that, that gold, the, the liquid gold in our cups. Um. Yeah. But well, um, we've talked a little bit about coffee. Let's get into things. Adam, I'll start with you. Uh, where, where are you from? Where were you born? Yeah, so I was born in uh, Berlin, Vermont uh, on the 16th of February. So my birthday just passed. Um, much like today's climate, it was very, very snowy. Um, and I spent about six years uh, embedded in that snow until I moved to Massachusetts, where I had all my formative years. Nice. Um, 
when you uh, when you were younger, what was what was breakfast like in your house? Was it was it cereal or was it was it pancakes on the weekends when the parents were off? In my like in my case, yeah, that's a good question. Where where I've always been like a big egghead, like lots of eggs. Uh, I actually like in as we were beginning to talk about this call and thinking about my breakfast as a child. I do distinctly remember a thing I don't do anymore, which is microwaved eggs. Um, and they get all puffy and super hot and weird. And it's like kind of delicious, but also kind of not great. Um, but yeah, mostly eggs, some cereal, um, pretty rarely uh, massive production. What was, what was cereal of choice? If you... Yeah, I big cinnamon toast crunch fan. Did some oh, yeah. apple jacks. Uh, all of these fruited cereals I was big into. Um, we did one time we we messed up in the roastery one time, um, and we had like two really expensive like natty coffees. We accidentally blended them together, um, and so we came up. It was a release called Oops All Berries because um, that's like pretty much what that was um it was like i remember that commercial it's like oh no the guy at the factory messed up and and now all you have is the sweet part of captain crunch um and so that was like a big one it's funny um tyler where did you grow up i'm from cleveland ohio uh seems to sneak into almost every one of my conversations, at least when I first meet somebody that um, from the Midwest, uh, proud of it, uh, loved coming from there. And uh, I wish I had um, something really to add to this conversation, but I also was a big Cinnamon Toast Crunch fan. Uh, that was breakfast as much as I can remember growing up. Uh, maybe the occasional Eggo waffle or uh, pancakes homemade from, uh, well, <laughs> homemade from Bisquick, but that's about all I can add to that uh, tangent right there. Uh, Bisquick is the bomb. Like, I still love some <laughs> good Bisquick pancakes. Um, Y'all ever do, y'all ever do blueberry pancakes growing up? Um, uh, that wasn't um, totally, I don't know. I always was more in it with the pancakes for the sugar. Uh, as I've matured, I've grown away from that and love to get fruit in there, bananas, blueberries, apple, whatever. But uh, mostly growing up, it was either a chocolate chip pancake or plain with uh, some Mrs. Butterworths. That was the mm -hmm. nice. <laughs> choice in the house. I'm going to have to. Uh, so the Vermonter in me is, is like, yeah, we had pancakes. Fine. But like, really, the show was the maple syrup that came from the neighbor's tree down the road. Um, and I have a lot of distinct memories of like just eating maple syrup or maple wow. syrup candy, or there's this thing called sugar on snow. Um, one of our importers lives in Vermont and I was just like talking with him about it. Just reminded like, so you boil the maple syrup down and then you, so it's like even thicker and then you pour it over freshly laden snow and then it harder, hardens into like a hard candy and then you break your teeth on it. <laughs> That's funny. Um, yeah. Adam, what was lunch? Were you bringing uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to school or were you buying your lunches? Yeah, I was a, a public school kid with the, with the public school lunch. Um, I, at any opportunity I get, I, I talk up the Massachusetts public school system. I think, you know, in, in the nineties though, they, were amongst the best in the country and maybe in the world. Um, the lunches were not uh, fantastic, but you can't win them all. Um, good education, mediocre lunch. <laughs> Tyler, what was uh, what were they serving in Cleveland? Well, my, I was lucky enough, my mom would pack me a lunch almost every day. And I know a lot of kids nice. I was with, they were left on their own to, to do that before school. Uh, but I, I always had it packed. Uh, usually I, growing up, uh, man, I had some looking back foods that I am not, not happy that I was eating. Uh, 
cold hot dogs were a, a big one in the early days. Um, <laughs> progressing to salami sandwiches and then some like honey glazed turkey sandwiches. Uh, and then notably as I got to high school, I would commute every single weekend in the spring and fall for uh, my family's work. And it was just, it always happened that we would stop at Arby's on the way home from this commute. And I, we, we, they had a deal. You get uh, five roast beef sandwiches for like $5. I don't know five how that's sustainable. Yeah. And uh, you eat one there and then I'd have a couple for lunch on Monday and a couple for lunch on Tuesday uh, with that Arby sauce. It was, it was great. Uh, I am no longer really a meat eater um, as of a few years ago, but I trust me, look back fondly on that and definitely gained a re reputation and was known for being the kid who had Arby's at the high school lunch. That's well, I mean, there's, there's worse wow. uh, nicknames and uh, things to be said. Um, I love Arby's. Um, I recently quit eating meat. Um, I became a pescatarian, so I, I miss the Arby's already, but yeah, Arby's it's the bomb. Um, Adam, tell me about uh, what was dinner like? Um, yeah, you know, going to like high school years, I guess, um, there was a lot of, so my, my stepdad is a hunter. Um, so we, we'd have a lot of deer, um, getting away from the vegetarian conversation. Um, we just, it was always deer. It was either like deer sirloin or, um, ground deer meat, or maybe shepherd's pie, which is like my all-time fave. Um, it was a lot of that and not a lot of, uh, spices, not a lot of, it was like pretty simple. Mm -hmm. Um, so like, I actually, you know, once I got to, once I got to college times, it was like the floodgates were open and it was like trying all of these foods from different places, different uh, ethnicities and different restaurants and different spices and different flavor combinations and it was like this has been missing for my entire life mm. um, so that's, yeah that's uh I grew up in Alaska so it was a lot of moose oh, wow. that's what it was moose and salmon that's what my stepfather would get it's also stepfather he would get that during the summer and we just wow. live on it all year long and, you know, same thing, make hamburger and the hamburger would be in stew, chili, uh, tacos, the, you know, the hard shell uh, tacos, of course. Yep. Um, if you were lucky enough, you caught a moose that had just eaten a salmon and then you had like a, a turducken of Alaska. Exactly. Like a... <laughs> Technically, the moose don't eat salmon, but it's a good, <laughs> I like, I like where your head is at. Uh, Tyler. Tyler, tell me about dinner. What what venison were they? Was your uh, your father bringing in? Yeah, I didn't have that same kind of hunting background in in the city uh, or the suburbs, rather. Um, you know, pretty classic family dinner. You sit down. You got some form of meat, uh, green beans, corn, or something to complement it, and a starch, usually potatoes, potato du yeah. jour, a lot of red skin or mashed potatoes, garlic, you know, uh, that seemed pretty constant. My mom would typically cook, but sometimes my dad had to take over the duty. Um, and I mean, bless him, he, he tried and <laughs> he, he came up with some good stuff, but uh, I don't recall it just quite as fondly as my mom's cooking. Yeah. That's funny. That's, that's very, that reminded me a lot of the, uh, the, the dinners I had growing up, always with the green beans, always with the just a big piece of meat. Um, well, guys, uh, Adam, what holidays were celebrated in your your household, and uh, what celebrations and what foods came with them? Yeah, um, so I grew up Jewish, so we did the Jewish holidays. Um, Though the one Jew the one holiday I can think of where there was food, where 
we had no connection to was St. Patrick's Day. We definitely had <laughs> corned beef on St. Patrick's Day. And I'm like, we go pretty hard on this holiday for having no Irish blood. But um, the one food I can think of is um, when in Hanukkah, you, you're supposed to like pretty much douse, douse everything in oil um, in order to celebrate the fact that they had enough oil to keep the, the light burning, all the fire and the light. Um, so there's a, a special donut that you eat. Um, mm. Called, I think it's called like sufganyot or uh, something like this. Um, these little like potato balls, uh, not potato balls, uh, donut balls. Um, I think you dip them in honey or powdered sugar. And that's the one thing that comes to mind. Um, any, any Thanksgiving? Was there Thanksgiving? Yeah, my family did Thanksgiving pretty big. Again, uh, growing up in Massachusetts, uh, you know, we feel like Thanksgiving is our holiday. Um, oh, yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, turkey stuffing, the whole situation. And uh, I went pretty hard on Thanksgiving. I'm not going to lie. But I never got the leftovers because we always went to, like, the extended families. <laughs> so it was, like, this year, and it was the pandemic. And I'm like, Lexi, uh, my wife, we're going to make a full Thanksgiving dinner and then I'm going to have all the leftovers and <laughs> like live out the, the situation I never got to to do uh, as a kiddo. That's funny. How was it? It was awesome. I crushed it. It was. <laughs> That's great. Did you put <laughs> did you put the marshmallows on top of the uh, sweet potatoes? Uh, I didn't do that. Um, See, that's, that's mine right there. That's my, that's, the, that's what makes it Thanksgiving to Jason. Oh, wow. Cool. Marshmallows are very like, uh, they like bring you back to being a kid for sure. Oh There's yeah. There's a time for marshmallows. Yeah. Uh, Tyler, how about you? Holidays. The one that stands out most to me. And I mean, we casually celebrated, uh, the traditional holiday is like Christmas and stuff, but every Christmas morning, French toast, no questions asked. That was going to be what we had. Uh, nice. And, you know, you maybe have it occasionally throughout the year if you're lucky, but it was just a guarantee on uh, Christmas morning. Otherwise, uh, everything was pretty much like clockwork. Uh, we would have corned beef and cabbage on uh, St. Patrick's Day, also on uh, New Year's Day. Um, and then oh, there's got to be one more. Um, definitely a, a, a steak or something for uh, the New Year's Eve and also something like that. Uh, I can't think of what Easter was, but it included uh, at least dressing up the, the meal more so than your typical meat and potatoes. Yeah. Um. Adam, can you give me a meal that you'll never forget? Um, it's a restaurant, someone's house, um, for whatever reason. The, the quality of the food or just the, the people you are with? Sure. Um, I mean, there's a lot on that list. So I think the duty here is to, to, to bring it back to, to Tyler. To maybe a meal I've shared with him. Um, there was this, Tyler and I were very, very, very lucky to be able to take a trip to Ethiopia um, and pretty much have like a, a, a person who was like our guide for like a week. And it was just like Tyler and myself and this person just visiting a bunch of like washing stations and stuff in southern Ethiopia um, and then we we're going to meet up with a larger group in western Ethiopia later on that week um, so we're tearing through southern Ethiopia it's the best it's the last day of the trip I think and it's like a 14-hour drive or whatever to get from like Yurgachev to back to Addis um, and so somewhere along the way we stop at this like you know like a somebody like a hut sort of thing um, as they have there and we sat and had like the full Ethiopian 
fasting meal where it's like all the different things. And uh, this was memorable one, cause it was just like, it was like kind of almost in the Rift Valley. I think it was like, you just really felt like you were in the middle of, if there was a middle of the world, that's where that <laughs> was. Um, and also because it had this ceiling um, that was like woven ceiling. Uh, Tyler, I don't know if you know, like remember what I'm talking about, but it was like essentially like a massive tassel. And I thought that was awesome. Um, and it was very delicious. And then there were like posters on the wall of like Ethiopia's boy. Um, that was like the, it was like an advertisement. Um, and so it was like between the posters and the ceiling and the absolutely delicious food and the incredible hospitality of these people who are like, why are these guys here? And our guide and sharing it with Tyler and uh, pre-COVID times, just like mowing in with your hands uh, as you used to eat Ethiopian food. When I came back from that trip, my New Year's resolution was to eat more food with my hands, um, <laughs> which, which has since had to be had to be reneged uh, due to COVID. But uh, yeah, that was super memorable. That was a good time. Tyler, you're up. Um, well, I'm trying to think of a similar situation where we've perhaps shared food at origin. Uh, I mean, I can easily, at least speaking to the hospitality side of things, almost no matter where we go, uh, no matter how much the, the guests have at, at the origin trip, they're just so giving. Uh, and that always strikes me in terms of the meals that we have, uh, so attentive to our needs, even if it's very clear that, you know, how much they're putting into the meal itself, um, it's very important to them that we feel welcomed. And that's absolutely something that we are, as we develop into having, a potential cafe, sorry for the noise, um, taking that hospitality and bringing it to what we are able to offer. Um, for me, in that same trip, uh, something that stands out, we, we, the first night we were in Ethiopia, I remember we were just so jet lagged and tired and I was maybe the most delirious I'd ever been from travel. and. <laughs> We were at the hotel bar, which sounds maybe fancy, but it was just a, a wooden bar with uh, a few glasses behind it and some cheap Ethiopian beer that was delicious. And we, we got served, I got served at least spaghetti. And you don't, I mean, I had never thought of Italian food and Ethiopian food being a crossover, but it turned out, I mean, Ethiopia being in a, a colony of Italy at one point, uh, there's some amazing Italian food in Ethiopia and it tended to be a little spicy and I just loved it. And I, I really do look forward to going back and being able to have that again. Yeah, so I was gonna roll with a spaghetti meal in Ethiopia too, that like when we went to Michael's like friend in Chelilectu mm -hmm. and he's like, hey, come here, you guys want some spaghetti? Yeah. And it was like a massive mound of spaghetti we were just, <laughs> dipping our arms into the spaghetti. <laughs> so good. What did they put on the noodles? So it was the noodles, was there a red sauce or was it something else? It was a red sauce. I, I mean, I might say it was kind of like an arrabbiata. Uh, it had a lot of pepper right. in it though. And uh, that's something I used to make in college. I'd make my own spaghetti sauce with, and I, at the time it, it was good, but I would, top of a habanero and throw it in the sauce and it was just so spicy and I loved it and it really brought me back to cooking pasta in my college dorm mm. yeah sounds was, good um special Adam Tyler tell me about the, the first time you realized pizza was as big of a thing as it was I feel like at a certain point you just go like pizza is the number one food in the world Everybody likes pizza. There's, there's nothing better than it. Uh, mine was at a Chuck E. Cheese when I was about four years old or five years old. Um, and also maybe the best pizza you've ever had. You could answer that also. Let's 
Yeah. Adam, are, are uh, you going to say is are you going to say Regina's? Was Regina's your favorite since you're from uh Massachusetts there? Regina's. Do you know Regina's um, in Boston? I'm I'm joking. So uh, sorry, no, I don't. Uh, but I did have, I did, we did uh, have a lot of Papa Gino's, uh, which is almost similar sounding in name. Uh, we had Papa Gino's when I lived in Lowell, Mass. They had like kids' night, and you know, I had a working single mother, so uh, they'd drop us off at the Papa Gino's, and we'd be coloring, uh, waiting for a mom to come home with hanging out with my grandma and eating this 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 pizza. Um, and there was pizza in, in Boston where I went to college. Um, and there was even a place called New York pizza, which was right across from my dorm. Um, and I would say that, uh, oh yeah. So then after college, I moved to Los Angeles, which is where I live now. And there was, there was pizza, <laughs> but frankly, it wasn't until I moved to New York city around 2010 where I then realized how good pizza can be and the multiple places that can serve wonderful, delicious pizza. And uh, LA has caught up since, but uh, New York is, is the king of pizza. And I could rattle off names for sure, but uh, I lived in the Lower East Side, pick your pick. It was all awesome. Tyler, what about you, pizza? Yeah, for me uh, in third grade, I remember uh, we'd have pizza about once a month at the school lunch, and it was kind of a day where you, it was known you, you didn't pack your lunch. I mean, unless mm -hmm. an economic situation called for it, uh, you got the school lunch, and it was pizza, and it was great, and we would sing, yeah. I, I wish I could remember it, but we would sing the pizza song <laughs> before lunch. <laughs> Uh, and I, I just remember know. chanting P-I-Z-Z-A a bunch, um, pizza, pizza every day. And <laughs> I wish I knew more. Uh, that, that was a formative uh, time for me, though. Uh, I'm thinking, the, I mean, perhaps the best pizza I've had was in Italy, in, in Napoli, having classic Neapolitan pizza uh, just made perfectly, perfectly uh, crispy and blackened thin crust um and wow. in new york you know we're i'm lucky to be out there uh in terms of that culinary side of things we have everything from roberta's which is i feel like that's known pretty widely at this point i'm not sure if you know of roberta's jason but that's a, that's a oh yeah they, they have a location style. yeah they have a location here in los angeles okay i know i think i remember that now um but then every Friday uh, growing up, we go to the local pizza place, which does its best to represent a New York style slice. It was called uh, Giorgio's. And every Friday mm -hmm. I'd have that. Uh, once I could drive, I'd be the one going to pick it up and uh, eat it all through the weekend, reheat it in the microwave. Uh, now I'm more of a stovetop reheater. I like the... Uh, the crispiness of the hmm. frying pan that that provides. Mm -hmm. but, uh, pizza Even is with your pizza stone, you have. Yeah, uh, you guys should. The baking. Yeah, now I have a pizza stone, uh, oh. so I, I I I use that quite a bit when I'm making my own. But if I'm just reheating a slice, uh, yeah, it's either pizza stone or frying pan. I like the baking steel. That's what I use, and it's a big Ooh, piece of stainless nice. steel, and it's it's that's for cooking the pizzas. But I can cook a pretty mean Neapolitan in about three minutes in there. Um, nice, yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Yeah, um, I've got the the grill, and I've been making a a six minute pizza. And that's mm. when uh, we were all doing sourdough like a year from today. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, and right. I was I was really had it going on. Uh, making that 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 pizza and then uh, doing it on my outdoor grill because luckily in Los Angeles you can be grilling at February March and making that pizza oh yeah yep yep um so if my next question is it's it's a couple parts here so if someone 10 15 years ago had came up to you and said hey 
we're going to go get some barbecue. What would you think they were? What do you think was the plan after that? <laughs> I like that answer. Um, that question. I feel like um, I was like very ready for barbecue as it wasn't. I mean, we did things on a barbecue, but we didn't have like barbecue. Um, okay. So in, in 2008, um, I did my first cross country road trip because I was petrified of flying and was moving oh, yeah. to Los Angeles. So, uh, so me and my two best friends took my car and we took three weeks and we, we took the Southern route. And I was like, wow, I can't believe I am legally allowed to have a high school degree and not having seen the majority of this country because it is very different from where I come mm -hmm. from. And uh, part of that was barbecue, barbecue culture. And I remember we stopped in Atlanta. Um, this was 2008. So I think that qualifies as 10, 15. Oh my God. Does it? 15. That's uh, 13 years ago. Nailed it. So <laughs> we stopped at a place called Fat Mats in uh, Atlanta and we had barbecue. And that might have been the first time that I had like legitimate like smokehouse, like Southern style barbecue. And then we stopped in Nashville and had barbecue and Memphis and had barbecue and uh, Texas. We stopped in Amarillo and had barbecue. And this was like the greatest, cause now I'm still obsessed. Even for my birthday, we got blood sows. Oh um, yeah, yep. Which I, and uh, so that's what, that was the spark now, or was yeah now back in the day if someone had said we're going to barbecue would that just be hamburgers and hot dogs on a grill yeah yeah that's um, exactly what that would but be. but nowadays when you when you hear barbecue nowadays it's it's smoked meats and it sounds like it's it's been that way for a little more than a decade basically yeah you know i've got some friends who are into it and they when they say that they're gonna barbecue it it probably means that they're gonna bring their a game and come up with something like incredibly skilled and delicious um uh well you know with with covid the, the culture is not really there like we can't mm -hmm. all just hang outside the barbecue like that but um but it's changed for me the definition uh, uh for the better uh, and Tyler, you, barbecue. I don't know if this is the answer you're maybe looking for, but for me, whenever I think of barbecue, I think of barbecue sauce. And the only mm. thing I almost ever put barbecue sauce on is going to be uh, chicken that was on the grill. And mm. so my mind immediately goes to just cooking a nice piece of chicken and slathering it in a sauce uh, or a rub of some kind. And that's what barbecue always was to me uh granted you know if you said we're, we're having a memorial day barbecue i would i guess i would think of um burgers and hot dogs whatever is inherently part of that holiday but uh yeah it was always chicken for me i can't say why except for the sauce yeah but, but adam 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 has now got you into the the real barbecue or oh you don't even eat meat anymore so. He's vegetarian. well i'm yeah. yeah, it's been, I mean, six, seven years since I've really been a meat eater. A um, couple slip ups in the early years, but um, yeah, you know what? Um, I, I'm very much impressed by the way that uh, the, the fake meat uh, is becoming, it's catching on more and really tasting quite like I remember a classic burger or sausage of some kind tasting um and i'm excited to see where that trend goes and how much you know how much more we can uh, yeah. replicate it i truly do like miss the taste of meat um but just uh you know at some point it became an ethical question for me uh as well as health wise and um mm -hmm. yeah I've had I, I mean i think we can achieve um that I've had some really great smoked vegetables actually that have just been phenomenal yep. and they tasted as good as anything. 
Well, yeah, we. I worked a. I worked a line at a vegan restaurant uh, as a, and um, they did a yuba ribs barbecue yuba ribs. So first, I think there was like a brining of said yuba, and then there was like smoking. Uh, and this was all done like in house. It was like a big production. It wasn't like just like um, doing it little. Like they really went for it. And these barbecue Uber ribs are like so good. And I crave those from time to time. And those are completely vegan and absolutely delicious. Sounds good. Um, real good. Um, guys, give me a restaurant or a bar that you wish was still open. Something that closed down, maybe it closed down because of COVID, maybe it closed down 20 years ago and you haven't gotten over it yet. Uh, okay, I have two answers. One is real and one is fake. So the fake answer is uh, like a little Chinese food place called Timbo's in Lowell, Massachusetts. Um, cause that's, you know, where I had my Chinese food and, uh, later in life, I, in college, I had a friend who was from that same area and we bonded over Timbo's and was always like Timbo's and, uh, yeah, that's not there anymore to my knowledge. So that's pretty depressing. But, um, the real answer I think is, um, a cafe that, that COVID just crushed. I mean, one of our biggest and best customers was Ambrose Cafe in Pasadena. Um, they were one of our first customers out here in Los Angeles. Um, so like we've had some older customers in, in New York. Um, and then as LA got going, it was really Ambrose who was like, not just buying in volume, but also buying like some of our riskier, more wild, more exciting coffees. They're just really cool owner. And uh, just due to, due to COVID, I mean, they just got crushed. So they closed. Mm. And like, I really just, I miss, like the baristas just loved what we did. Like, it was just like a proof of concept. It was like, you could take risks, buy cool coffees, uh, have an awesome wholesale partner, have customers who are into it. Uh, and it's just gone now. Yeah. Yeah, fucking COVID. Uh, Tyler, what about you? Taking it back to pizza one more time. There's a shop in Brooklyn. There was a shop in Brooklyn called Archie's. And they weren't a New York style slice place, but they just had the best pizza with the, the freshest toppings, really inventive, uh, a great kind of divey place where, you, you know, you could go at 2 a.m., get a solid beer and a great slice of pizza or pasta and I miss that a lot I go there after I used to work uh, doubles uh, a couple days a week and distinct memories on Tuesdays of working two jobs and coming home at like 11 p.m or so just on my walk back from the subway getting that slice uh, usually with some really great artichokes or olives on it and I, I miss that place, but uh, unfortunately, they closed maybe eight, oh, eight to ten, ten months ago. Yeah. Damn, I didn't know that. Um, now, yeah. actually, Tyler, um, speaking of closed places in Cleveland, were you all from? Were you familiar at all with uh, Jonathan Sawyer's restaurants over there? I heard he closed a few places just recently. Jonathan Sawyer. Um, I can't say that I am. I, I, I'm thinking of a couple of restaurants I, I know in Cleveland that closed um, and they belong to Michael Simon, uh, who is a former Iron Chef. Yeah, um, yeah. And he had a couple that closed. I'm not sure of the one that you're talking about though. Yeah, I think he was he was a couple of years. He was like the, the, the next guy after Michael Simon, like the big, the big guy. Okay. And I think, um, yeah, I think he was big like 15 years ago, maybe, was when he kind of mm. got on the scene. Um, but he just didn't have that kind of the facial appeal that Michael Simon did. But <laughs> sure. Well, sure. Um, since, uh, since you two, of course, are uh, running a sourcing and roasting company, let's end on a, a, little, uh, a little coffee talk. Um, 
I have uh, either one of you have anything to say about uh, basically the, the current state of uh, of what's going on out there with with coffee, with consumers, with cafes. Um, you're of course you're doing uh, pop ups right now at a really great fried chicken place, Crawford's, Texas style fried chicken and bar. Um, uh, how's how that all come about? Yeah, well, our, our employee Nolan is really good friends with the um, the manager over there, and um, as we're a predominantly a wholesale roasting company, we never get to like flex on like how we want the coffee to be served. And in general, I take a pretty chill approach to our wholesale customers. They can pretty much do what they want with it. Um, if they ever ask for help, ask for knowledge, ask for dialing in, that sort of thing. We are there, you know, we show up for our wholesale customers, but we don't force anything upon them. So then we, we get thinking like, well, what would it be like if we could serve the coffees the way we want to serve them? Um, make sure it tastes as great as we think they are. And then when a customer says, what is this? You can actually talk about it because uh, Nolan's been to a bunch of these farms. Um, and I've been to every single one of them. So, um, so that's, that was sort of how the pop-up came to be. Um, it'll probably be for, uh, we're not sure like if it's going to be like an ongoing thing or, um, it, I think we're just going to do it in February as like a, a one-off maybe. Um, we'll see how it goes. Cool. Cool. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, well, uh, anything to add, uh, Tyler? Um... Well, just talking about the state of the coffee industry in 2021 and beyond, I mean, I've been in coffee now for, I believe this is my eighth year. And just in that time, not even a, a decade, we've seen a big shift in terms of what we call third wave coffee, specialty coffee, uh, at least within our company. And I know many other reputable companies about taking it back to the, the producer. Um, and it's, it's more than just nice latte art, you know, and uh, that really felt like the vibe in 2013. But I, I'm happy to say that at large, we've moved beyond that. I think we're just at the beginning of a lot of fascinating trends in coffee. Uh, and by that, I mean, you know, we've, we have natural process coffees. We've had those for so long. Um, and we moved to being able to process coffees anaerobically and taking advantage of microbiomes that can drastically alter the end product. But now we're talking about like pitching yeast in coffee and how that can not only affect the flavor, but affect the entire cup profile and score and really has the potential to, you know, change the lives of some farmers who can produce better coffee and sell it for a higher premium and be way better off. And uh, so I think that that's the direction, um, just these new changes and inventions uh, within specialty coffee at the, at the local farm level that are really gonna be huge game changers going ahead. Yeah. That's cool, man. It's a lot of stuff. Yeah. Adam, do you have something to add? Yeah, I'd love to piggyback on that is, is talking about the, the future of, of what this all is. And you know the difference between like 2013 and now, um, you know, in 2013, if you went down to origin and you cupped some coffees and shook some hands and came back and that was your story, um, you were like, you were doing better than everybody else. That was awesome. But in that time, we kind of all got plane tickets and all flew down. So now you're doing almost what the bare minimum of specialty coffee is just by shaking some hands and cupping some coffee. So then what is the future? What, and how can you be better? Not that it's like that much of a competition, but just like, how can you just be the best? Um, and so in my mind, it's all about your actual connection, a sustaining connection 
with your growers, with the producers, with your exporting partners, um, with your importers, with everybody, um, and not just transparency, but like a lasting, meaningful relationship. Because it's one thing to put a picture of a farmer on a bag. It's another thing to say, you know, this is the homie that I've been buying from for four years. And, you know, I've, I've we've watched their kids grow up um, and like develop personalities, which is cool. And I'll never forget that one time that they offered us the stew uh, that was super delicious. And um, the we've created a new financial incentive structure with this farm because you know in further communicating with them we found that the prices they're getting are very unstable so we've managed to stabilize and improve their the price they're getting um and we talk year round we say you know what's up in like june which for most green buyers is like stupid time to talk to your growers because it's just waiting game for the next harvest so instead of playing the waiting game you're actually connecting and talking to them and getting to know them, forming a, forming a relation, introducing them to your cafe partners and planning for the year ahead. So that's what I think the current state it should be, but it's what the future is. Well, I, I like your, uh, your approach of, of, you know, farmer first. I mean, he's the, realistically he or she is the most important part of the whole process because if we can't get good quality beans that are that are grown well then what's the point absolutely well gentlemen i appreciate it so much um this was great um thank you for all the thank you for answering all the questions i, I really appreciate it a lot unity sourcing and roasting tyler and adam uh, anything else before you guys uh, take off? Any last words? Oh, well, just thank you very you much for having us, Jason. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Uh, this is a really is my honor. I really appreciate it. Hopefully, I can get some of your. Uh, I'm going to pick up a bag of your coffee at commissary or somewhere, or do another pop up at Crawford's. I'll hopefully be able to stop on through. And uh, I actually just wrote Adam uh, a, a list for this website, uh, best places for the top 15 barbecue spots in the, in LA. So I'll send that Ooh. along to you. You can uh, mark a couple places off. Excellent. Is slab on there? Slabs on there. Yep. Yep. All right. I'd say, I mean, to me, slab and blood sows are about as good, good as you're going to get for the price in the city. Um, but there's a place, Robert Earl's in North Long Beach, that I think is excellent for a family run place. Willingham's, awesome. Willingham's in Redondo is the secret like sleeper of, of everybody. Um, Rodney's Ribs in Pasadena, which is in like a, a parking lot, but I digress. Uh, nice. Tyler, Adam, thank you very much. Food POV. This is Jason. I'm out. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to Food POV with Jason Parker. Until next week, stay hungry.